Hello and welcome to Cartoonist Kayfabe. My name is Jim Rugg. I'm Ed Piskor. Going to continue our look at the Eisner-Miller interview. Before we do that, I want to invite everybody to like, follow, and subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe YouTube channel if you haven't done so already. Hit that bell icon next to the sub subscribe button and you will be notified when we post a new video. It'll help offset the uh, Kayfabe effect. If you see a, a video and you or see a book that we cover and you want to track that down, that notification will give you a leg up on the competition because you won't be the only one looking for that book. Um, also, let these videos play through to the end. That enables the YouTube algorithm to share our videos with other comic fans that might not know Cartoonist Kayfabe. It's one of the ways we grow this channel, and we appreciate your help and support in growing this channel. So uh, last note before we dive in here is this is a series that we have been doing covering a large interview or conversation between Frank Miller and Will Eisner about all things comics. Um, you can check back. Uh, we'll have links below this video to earlier parts of this interview. We do about five chapters at a clip and uh, we're up to chapter 16. So we have a couple of previous installments of this video. But the way these guys talk, I feel like you can kind of dive in anywhere. Yeah. So welcome to uh, two great cartoonists discussing comics. And uh, Ed and I putting uh, maybe a, a few comments on top of those. But uh, do check out previous installments because there's a lot of good material in this. There's a theme to to uh, these five parts. Uh, and it's a theme of... It, it's There's a little like us versus them. Cartoonists versus like the the carpenters, the, the factory hands. Uh and there's a lot of an ex a lot of expressions of embarrassment in other people working in the medium uh, that these guys have uh, for 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 people who are out there just pun punching the clock. It's um there's a lot of comics history that these guys bring to the this conversation and, and kind of legacy feelings they have about that that comics history and, and the industry that they come into. So yeah, we will uh, certainly be diving into that as we as we move along. But I like that history part. And it's interesting how different their points of views are. You'd think Will Eisner would be like the old man in the room, but I feel in a lot of ways has has a different perspective on comics history than Miller, who seems much more uh, connected to what we think of as comic book history. Eisner spent so much of his career working around what we think of as comic book industry history. Miller, he's in it, man. He's in the thick of it, you know, Marvel DC contracts, and, and, and we'll get some details on some of that stuff as they go. But it is an interesting perspective because I feel like Miller's the guy who comes off as the bitter old man in a lot of these looks at the comics industry. Yeah, I think if, uh, Mil Miller is Miller's in the fight, and he's... He's moved the needle himself, and and if you are the one guy essentially like in the game who's doing that, it feels like it's got to feel like Sisyphus. It's got to feel like three hundred. You know what I mean? Because it, he's surrounded by a, a bunch of people who absolutely will not uh, unionize or. Ask for new page rates. Yeah, this is this is in some ways getting really far ahead because we'll come to it later. But I think it paints uh, this will illustrate what you're talking about, Ed. Whenever DC introduced royalties, Miller said he went into the office. the uh, The office door was closed. He 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 wrote on a piece of paper and taped it to the the door. Uh, Match this or I'm gone. And another successful Marvel artist at the time said, "Company loyalty, man. Doesn't matter if they paid him royalties or not. He wasn't going anywhere." Don't know who that is, doesn't matter, but it illustrates that idea of like, 
that was that was a freelancer like every freelancer should have been there should have been that door should have been covered in signs that said match this or we're gone and instead he's the guy that does it and the other guys are like yeah you don't have to pay me royalties listen we don't know who it was but it could have been a cog in the machine it could have been a cog in the machine there were a lot of cogs in the machine like in some ways not knowing who it is means it was everybody else everybody <laughs> didn't put a sign on that door is who it was you are spartacus not me and jim <laughs> but you you know who you are uh they start off talking publishers and you know again th there's they have this really different point of view and i think it's based on their experiences but Eisner's just completely professional the function of a publisher is to find a market they're in pursuit of readership that's what their job is and boy would i be happy if i agreed with him but i don't know that that's what publishers do anymore <laughs> um you know uh one of one of his what he gives miller here is you know before you there weren't too many guys who had their names above the title as, as being a thing that is pushing this market forward and evolving the publisher freelancer relationship it's it's weird because we use the word publisher to describe work for hire when you say publisher like you think of say a traditional book publisher it's a completely different business relationship and yeah. so it's weird to use the word publisher to describe both part both models because they're very very different and especially to the uh the creators the writers and artists totally different models it's a shame there's not a different word for it i mean they they spend four four pages trying to figure out like what what do you mean by publisher what does that mean to you yeah and you know this is a will eisner pool quote they're the guys who understand marketing I don't know if anybody understands marketing in today's world. You know, so much has changed. Like, who's selling books? Show me who understands marketing. You know, it's it's not, uh, I don't think it's default that it's the publishers. There are a lot of publishers that are struggling to sell books who, you know, I'm not sure they understand the marketing. Yeah, I, th I think it's like they're the ones testing their theories. You know, they're putting the, their money where the mouth is. Man, I mean, that's essentially what it is. Miller ends this page on comics history is pretty brutal. Yeah. And I think that, again, informs his point of view. There's that part too, there, too, where why be ashamed of ourselves? Uh, and that is certainly at this time when they were having this conversation in the early aughts. Uh, that was the 90s, you know, like all this like apath apathy and self-flagellation uh, when comics was at its worst in, in, in our lifetimes, a lot of self-flagellation, a lot of that stuff. And uh, people were embarrassed, man. Yeah. They tell the story about some guy had a novel published, uh, you know, a comics writer had a novel published and then everybody's running around going, this guy's a giant. He's a real writer. And uh, meanwhile, that stuff was remaindered. <laughs> <laughs> do you do do you remember, man? That was a scene in Mad Men when, like, one of the uh, one of the um, ad dudes got a book published, and like the other Mad Men were like, "Fuck that guy!" Like, <laughs> like just like all jealous and stuff. That's what that's what it reminds me of. Man. I say all the time, like, any of these ideas that we make that go, "Hey, cartoonists are this way or that way, or comics are this way or that way," it probably applies to the world at large. We, we think immediately of our surroundings and the people we know who are cartoonists, but most of this stuff applies outside, and that madman is a perfect example. It's anybody that's going outside their lanes that's getting some some uh, attaboys, you know, from, from other ventures. Like uh, I mean, str straight up, like you and I, man, we're, we're from, we're blue-collar dudes. Uh, once, once you start getting published and stuff like that, like, you probably didn't don't hang around with the same people you hung out with before then. Like I, I went through a real pain period of just like the social, the social garden was getting pruned here and there, man, because, 
actually, like, as weird as it sounds, I remember, like, hearing Oprah say that, like, when, you know, she had fluctuating weight and stuff, when she would get skinny, she would lose friends because they want her to be fat and whatever, man, right. unhealthy. They like their better that way. Yeah, that expression, birds of a feather flock together, I always think, like, one of the models for if you want to do something, find other people that have done it. Yeah. Hang out with them. Absolutely, man. You want to be a mathematician? Hang out with mathematicians. Yes, totally. So uh, we do go through a little bit of this uh, kind of history of comics, history of the industry. You know, we've talked about that in previous episodes, like uh, Donenfeld at DC Comics. He owned it. He owned everything, and, and all the talent was uh, interchangeable. And that was kind of it for a long time. That was the only deal. And, you know, we're going to going to trace through that. The alternative, of course, is, you know, Dick Tracy shows up here. The alternative are the comic strip artists, the guys who owned their comic strip, not the ghosts or the people that were hired to to, uh, to do the Superman daily strip. But, you know, that was like still comics as we understand it as a language, but a completely different business model. They mentioned is Dick Tracy. Uh, just as an example um, for like how like famous funnies and Max Gaines the early how the early page rates were derived basically and it was by by like the cost of getting the printer proof so if it cost five dollars for a week's worth of of uh, Dick Tracy strips you're getting paid five dollars to do a filler page in a comic right they make those distinctions between the cartoonists of comic strips and the cartoonists of comic books in terms of um, religion like the wasps are like daily cartoonists and things and like how comic books was was a jewish medium and uh the shoot interview we did with howard chaykin or maybe it was like a howard chaykin interview from wizard we read or something he either told us or it was in the interview um how gil kane aspired for for to be in that space but there was all this all this anti-semitism in that culture and in Connecticut where all those guys live, like Gil would take Howard to like dinners and stuff and like point out how all these, the individuals at the restaurant, like, you know, this guy said this and this guy said that, but then also Gil Kane was also kissing their butts and stuff like wanting to be in that world that was like real confusing for them yeah and 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 when you say you know comic books uh, were like this uh, associated with a jewish uh, medium it was because of anti-semitism and comics being like this entry-level lowbrow art yeah the way eisner explains it nobody right. else wanted to participate so they you know they had, had an opportunity and took it eisner talked about turning down fucking superman well, you know, he also mentions that when Miller gets into it, that publishers were no longer owning Superman wasn't enough. They, they Not just anybody could do it. You needed the right guy on there. I don't totally, I, I, I don't agree with that. Well, like what, what they're talking. Like, and I feel like there are thousands of issues that have been published since this interview that will, will back me up and that there have been thousands of creators roll through Superman. If it was really dependent on a couple of people or, or you know, brands of these cartoonists, that'd be one thing, but that's not the machine. But here, here's here's the thing, though. Like, it starts off and it's the phenomenon, and and, mm -hmm. it, and then it's, so it starts at a base level that's very very high, and uh, it's diminishing returns after diminishing returns after diminishing returns, and even the TV show didn't exactly do. It it didn't like move the needle so much with with the actual comic book, 
Like, it was still dying and dying and dying. Neil Adams comes along, adds a little touch. The numbers go up. Frank Miller comes along. It goes up more. Like, that's sort of what he's talking about. So, like, Frank Miller then puts Batman up at another high level, and it's been slow diminishing returns ever since. So it's just like this cycle, you know? So that I think that's what he's saying. Like, like you can get you could get creators in there that'll move the needle and put those cells back up. But it's hard to predict who that creator is. You know what's funny is this reminds me of the Jim Shooter deposition where it's like one artist is what would sell more books yeah. at that time. You know, this is talking about the early direct market in the 80s and specifically Barry Windsor Smith fill an issue. Um, but it, it points to the rarity. You know, like you think of the thousands of people that have done Batman comics and Miller's the guy who who had a Batman book that didn't move the needle. Yeah, with 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 the uh with what's going on these days, man, uh the publishers know that with our giant mouthpiece of the Cartoonist K Fabe channel, that we move the needle. So those calls that keep coming in, listen, you guys Is there can... is there a Batman announcement you wanna make, Ed? I'm just saying <laughs> it's nice to be asked for things, man, but you gotta you gotta romance us in order to uh, get us to make your books. See Hulk Grand Design. Yes. By Hulk Grand Design, <laughs> the best way to see it. Um, so one one thread that comes through here is Miller talking about how like doing this kind of work for hire, working in this kind of system where talents devalued either by the publisher or by the artists themselves, that it eats away at the soul. And uh, I don't want to step on your highlighted notes, Ed, <laughs> but I do see that you've highlighted again Miller saying this. I do believe that over a long period of time, being that kind of hired gun is not good for an artist and is not good for the art form. This is uh, this says so much because one of them is complacency. Yeah, you know if you if you know this is the system and you're in there and you're doing well, there's a ceiling. There there is a ceiling, but also what's the incentive to experiment, to find new things, to keep pushing yourself if you're already in the position you want to be in? You know, it's almost you're paid to sort of maintain the status quo. They're, you know, after a couple of years, they're paying you to be you. Right. As opposed to like, I'm going to show up and I'm going to be Jim Lee and I'm going to show up and do Death Blow with a totally different art style. Right. No, <laughs> that's not what we're paying you for. I, I highlighted that uh, specifically with, with us in mind, actually, man, because of like the Grand Design projects and like what that is, you know, like uh, X-Men Grand Design, like it's a weird art style. The guy who draws that comic if he sent submissions in, would not be hired by Marvel Comics to do something. That's an artist who has proven success with a previous work of a, the exact format, who is like sort of accepted into the fold with all the quirks and follies and, and any of that kind of thing. And you get that opportunity, you take that opportunity, Hulk Grand Design, and you could do mutually good business and get maximum value out without being on the fucking hamster wheel. Your Instagram numbers are going to jump a whole lot with this Hulk stuff. Like, yeah, people, you have Madcraft and you draw something fresh, people are going to like it. But if you draw something that they already know and like, they'll respond to that even more because it's something that they're more aware of. It, it boosts your profile. You're helping them out because you're actually making a good comic uh, for, for you know, these publishers that turn out product. So uh, there, if you look at it like that, like business, you can come out unscathed and still actually have a career. Build some equity. Like that's a term that's used throughout this conversation. Build some equity. You know, your, your, your Street Angel comics, uh, 
make money in your sleep you know like while those things are selling you're directly profiting from that stuff which is not true if you did a marvel comic in the 70s you know like that wasn't set up to get royalties and stuff so once you did your page rate that was it and by the way making money in your sleep from those and by the way to to this day like you will not be getting a dollar for the portuguese edition of hulk grand design so there's still there's still limits with their system that but i still appreciate the readers in portugal (laughs) (laughs) um getting back into this interview it's interesting because they bring it eisner brings it back to batman yeah and this idea of like this is after the second dark knight book so after miller has gone back and done another round and is working on uh batman holy terror he mentioned it in previous chapters and uh eisner's like you know you didn't really have to do this you know speaking i think from a financial standpoint you can do other things you know sin city obviously a big hit 300 a big hit you know like miller was doing well with the stuff he was originating as well and so um you know asks him about why'd you go back and he says that he wanted to he had a fun story so what's his very next sentence man that i have highlighted right here uh i didn't want to come up with my own in brackets creator owned version of batman which he had to do with that holy terror comic that he's working on at this time because it is way too far out and that is uh just i get what's it called? it's just called holy terror yeah just holy terror yeah it's interesting to consider some of these ideas right you know what i take away from this is you you do this kind of stuff ed you have a lot of flexibility miller has flexibility if he wants to go to dc with an idea that is very different than uh you know a, a unsolicited kind of submission <laughs> this is called cartoonist kayfabe and i detect a little kayfabe here with i really wanted to i had a fun story i bet you could have a fun story if somebody comes to you and says we will give you a million dollars an issue you know what i have a fun story in mind man yes that's a, that's the other thing like uh at a certain point i guess it's just gauche to like say you're doing shit for money or for economic reasons and stuff but every cartoonist that like that i respected like as a kid and read interviews of they have all these amorphous artsy reasons for doing what they do but then you see that it directly lines up with the market you know what i mean and both things can be true like whenever i did the first issue of street angel we had generated a ton of other ideas Mm -hmm. you know like i had this uh, this you know, I did have other ideas to be like, okay, let's do more of this because one, maybe the best idea is this next one that came up halfway through doing issue one. If you do Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One, I bet you you have a surplus of Batman ideas bouncing around in your head for the rest of your life. That's literally where Batman Year One comes from too. Uh, he made backstory and stuff for uh, for the characters while he was putting that together. And I bet you he was getting calls from DC regularly that were like, hey. When are you going to come back and do another Batman story for us? Yeah. What, what, what do it take? Here's just, that. We put another zero on the offer. Just like, got to let the uh, comics medium, sir, the business of comics implode. You want two more they, zeros on there? Go take, go take out paycheck, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have, uh, I don't begrudge that at all. And again, it feels like this is, this is progress. You know, the ability to be able to do Sin City and Batman. That's, uh, that's the best of all worlds, right? Yeah. Cartoonist Kayfabe is brought to you by the comic books that we make. Red Room Trigger Warnings, issue number one is on the stands today. In the first week of April comes Red Room Trigger Warnings, issue number two. That's the Pumpkins issue of Red Room. And of course, last year uh, saw Red Room, the Antisocial Network, the idea for Red Room. It's Murder on the Dark Web 
for fun and profit. Every issue is completely self-contained and it is a gory splat fest to say the least. Uh, the rest of the, the Ed Piscor bib bibliography that is currently in print, you have three volumes of oversized X-Men Grand Design retelling the entire story of the X-Men saga up through the origins to Days of Future Past, four volumes of Hip Hop Family Tree documenting in a very linear fashion the history of hip-hop and rap music, and WYSIWYG, Portrait of a Serial Hacker, charting the life of a computer hacker from the earliest days of high technology up to uh, WikiLeaks. Out in stores now, Jim Ruggs, Hulk Grand Design Monster, issue one, the 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 first half of uh, the, the Incredible Hulk lore, out on the stands as we speak, various flavors, the Peach Momoko is coming out soon. How's that work, Jim? April 14th. It'll be in stores everywhere. April 16th. <laughs> 40, 40 pages in issue documenting the history of the Incredible Hulk. There is a banger on every single page. Get it while it's hot. This thing is not going to be in the stores for long. And uh, before you know it, comes Hulk Grand Design uh, Madness with uh, some very cool variant covers uh, by Ed McGinnis and Jeff Darrow to kind of goose those uh, bookshelves in your local comic shops. And the rest of the Jim Rugg bibliography in stores now, Playing Janes with Cecil Castellucci, and uh, rapidly going out of print soon. If you see it in your comic shops, get your hands on it right away, man, because we don't know when this is going to be back in print. Street Angel, Deadliest Girl Alive. Get these numbers up high on those Amazon charts. We love seeing it. We thank you so much. We appreciate your patronage. And now that we're done paying the bills, let's get back to the video. This is another uh, where you turn the page. We're, we're at another one of those great kind of loggerheads. Uh, where where Eisner is the bougie dude who wants who wants comics to be, you know, this highfalutin medium. Like you see, this is his quote right there. And Miller is like, I want, I like, uh, I want comics to be cocky, full of itself. He talks about liking the sort of uh, vulgarity of comics. So so it's that they have that yin yang sensibility. Yeah, a fair amount of arguing over, uh, even I think Eisner goes back a couple times and refers to semantics is yeah, what they're yeah. arguing over. Yeah. Not my most interesting thing, but there are insights. You know, like Miller talks about uh, the future and how we moved into the future and says there's a lot of people in comics are far too reverent to the comics they grew up with. I think that's true. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's true today, too. It's interesting reading this because it's a 20-year-old conversation. And then, like, seeing, like, what, what still were, what were they right about? What hasn't changed at all? One of the things that he, that he says, and I, I almost feel like it's poking the bear, is uh, he, Miller says something like, you know what, we don't even need more bookshelves. Like, let's, let's stop doting on, on hack work that was done in the 40s. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that because at the same time, like we live in a golden age of reprints. So, yeah, yeah, but, but, but sorting that stuff out, like it, it is. Um, that's the key. It really is. That's the key. And there's so much stuff. You know how you figure out what's good today? Wait 20 years and see what's still around. That's how I. That's how I uh, manipulate my television watching schedule. Is like, okay, Mad Men's been off for a bunch of years. And I still hear people talk about it. I'll check it out. Um, see any of those old Batman comics? Like we talked about it in like a Dark Knight episode or, or, or something where Frank Miller's talking about 
you know, I'm trying to bring Batman to what it was. And it's like, what are you talking about? Because all that stuff, almost every Batman comic from back in the day is turds. It's garbage. It's unreadable. It's boring. It's uncool. It looks good. Some of it. <laughs> yeah. Have they sprang stuff? Yeah, man. With Charles Paris Inks. Yeah, oh yeah. My, my, my favorite Dick Sprang. Um, <laughs> Isolate that audio. <laughs> <laughs> they talk a little about sort of uh, Miller's experiences going through Marvel, showing up with his submissions of uh, crime comics, but taking whatever he could get because like there just weren't crime comics happening at that time. Yeah, I'm so mad. Like We have this chapter of Apple 5. We showed it off several times, and I just hate that it's that image because it's chapter 9. Like, Let me see the other chapters. I made I made Dave Cho ask about it, and and he's like, "What are you talking about?" Because like when he when he got dinner with uh, mm-hmm. Frank Miller, and I took a bunch of pictures. He said he he showed that stuff to Miller, and Miller was like, "Yeah, stuff will not be being reprinted anytime soon." But it looks like I would love to see that. It does look really cool. Good lettering. You know what's wild? This particular panel and this character, I see uh, McFarlaneisms in it. Sure. Like that hand. Totally. Some of those finger details. Totally. It also has uh, like. Tr- Charlton Comics vibes. Like, I can see this, this artist getting hired to do a romance comics for Charlton. Not quite what happens, man. He gets uh, hired to do Twilight Zone comics for Gold Key, <laughs> but uh, close. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure who says this feels like it's a McFarlane pool. I think we, I think from now on, we should stop arguing that we're valid. We just are. This is, this is a cool thing to experience. This happened in our life. This was the argument when I was a kid, Mm -hmm. you know, the idea that this is an art form. This conversation really doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. At least not around me. Yeah. It's, uh, it's the, what's the title of that, um, Fantagraphics? Yeah. We were, uh, we were right. We, we told you so. Oh yes. We told you so. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I feel like. And that's kind of awesome. You know, I, I feel like that is something I witnessed. Right. Yeah. And, and upon reflection, it's like, it's like these kind of conversations make you, makes you realize that in a way, because it's kind of slow, slow moving, like when, when you're going through it. Uh, but absolutely, man. I mean, you know, I know people in, in, in academia who are getting credits for courses in, involved in comics and the medium of cartooning. I can't imagine like the number of college classes that are offered like this semester across the nation that are in comics in some way, whether it's history, art, literature, any of it. There's yeah. so many of them. And like, that was unheard of. When I went to school in the nineties, it'd be like a film survey class or something would be the equivalent of that. And now it's like, even schools that are, it has nothing to do with an art program will teach comics is just like literature or whatever. Bill Boy Shell, copacetic comics proprietor, have a shoot interview with him. He has this whole thesis about how the comics medium like sort of follows behind the trajectory of films place in in culture with with academia with the educational process with mentorship with the reception to the audience has to do with like you got to have your your vaudevillians fucking die off for the youngsters to start to accept it then you have to have the people who were only into silent movies they got to die off for the talkies to be the accepted thing so as things keep moving you know you slough off the dead weight it becomes more ubiquitous like i mean brace yourself but in about 10 years we're going to have like live action pokemon movies and like shit like that you know like it's it's all you just need the 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 the, the kids who grew up with the stuff to be in the the uh, decision making positions 
All right, man. Chapter 17, Shop Talk. Yes. I love this first line by Eisner. I could never work with somebody else. <laughs> I, I, I think that a lot. But you used to run a shop. Yeah, that's, uh, this is fun because we get into some of the shop and how it worked. And, you know, Eisner almost being like a teacher and uh, keeping everybody on point and, and, and doing what he wants them to do. And one of the revelations here is uh, he's going to pay the, the shop dudes salaries yes. instead of page rates. Very innovative idea. And his reason is quality is a concern. It's not just deadlines. So, you know, the guy who's getting a page rate doesn't want his micro payment to be, uh, oh, now you want me to redraw this page or this panel because it's not good enough. And I'm still just getting, you know, f five bucks now for a page and a half of work. You do a salary, and guess what? Bob Powell's happy to, uh, yeah, sure, boss. You want this panel uh, redone? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what I'm drawing. I'm getting paid the same. So, sweet. You, uh, we did a snuff video, a CGC snuff video of Police Comics number thirteen with Warren Bernard. Uh, I've seen plenty of DC uh, Golden Age books. Seen plenty of uh, Atlas Timely books. That was a better package, pause, than uh, <laughs> than any of the Marvel DC stuff. Uh, cover by Reed Crandall. There are marks on that cover that are Will Eisner marks. There's like some some shading on the on the upper thigh that is the train track shading that Will Eisner does. It's his hand, so he's bringing his that energy in, uh, and he's touching. He's probably touching many pages in those things. Uh, the quality comics, the stuff that he put together the the entire product was a superior product you had Lou Fine, you had Reed Crandall Bob Powell Bob Powell you know you had some uh, fucking Jack Kirby yes yeah it, it it's it, it is noteworthy because like you say we've looked at a lot of uh, golden age books and they don't all look like that for sure uh, ran a shop much like a class like running a school I make note of that because he would go on for a long tenure at SVA teaching comics so kind of neat to see how that sort of uh, maybe maybe a part of his career his whole time. Calls himself uh, player manager, man. Yes, Larry Bird. There you go. <laughs> this is fun. Nobody had passion. Miller asks him about the other guys working in comics at the time, and he says, "I was the only guy I knew who believed that this was a lifetime career." I wonder how kayfabe that is. Like, when did he decide it was a lifetime career? Um, and it just feels like it, it could have easily been later on. I feel, like where he kept, you know, he did good work, the salary thing, very forward thinking. Whenever he switches to the spirit, you know, again, I think that's a forward thinking move because conventional wisdom was you've got a good business here. What are you doing? Um, but I wonder like when he realizes like, yeah, this is it. See, same issue of Police Comics, man. Check out that video. Um, we see what his spirit strips look like. Pretty by the numbers. An evolution of his Hawks of the Sea type stuff. Very, you know, nine panel grid type stuff. We The reason we cracked it open was to look at the Jack Cole front piece. Mm -hmm. A plastic man. And you see the wild splash pages. You see the interesting storytelling bits that Eisner adopted from him. We sort of, we state that claim in, 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 in that video. Um, you can't tell me that Jack Cole doesn't have passion for this shit. You know, like like the level of thought he's putting into that stuff. And I feel like there are some other guys. Like, uh, you know, I think Basil Wolverton made, made real, like, interesting kinds of comics and stuff. Yeah, and if you uh, question his passion, like, go read those fanographic books that, that document, like, his early, you know, his, his experiences. 
because like everything was stacked against him. He's in Washington State, which never whatever, happened. Or, There's no or, FedEx, or Oregon, or something. Sending samples to New York that are getting lost, that are getting revised, that he's not getting paid for, and good luck tracking down payment when you're three thousand miles from the guy with the money. Yeah, in, in 1940, 1950, and, and sticks with it, you know, and, and really doesn't get his due until decades later. Shots of Glen Bray. So, yeah, there, there were certainly a couple other uh, passionate people out there. I, I, I don't think Kirby could do anything without passion. Right. So some, some, uh, you know, some, some people probably are examples of that. Hey, Eisner says he created a graphic novel. <laughs> I highlighted Johnstone and Cushing as a uh, at, like an illustration advertising agency that I hear a lot of. Uh-huh. One place you'll see it is in some of Dave Sims' Glamour Puss and, uh, you know, like, like ruminating on some of the history of these illustrative techniques that would come into daily comics especially the alex raymonds and things so i've always heard that from uh neil adams neil adams is another one like it's a it's a long distinguished agency that was known for their their great great illustrations so thought it was fun to see that pop up because you'll see it around the fringes of comics history here and there mm-hmm. uh miller acknowledging you know when he came into comic books that's what he wanted to do right but also saying that like all those guys were really keeping their lights on, doing ad work, doing piecemeal stuff for Neil uh, Adams Continuity Associates, man, doing, you know, little little storyboard nonsense and stuff like that. Joe Kubert was running a shop at uh, at the Kubert School, Telegraphics it was called, and I uh, had the best students down there in the dungeon. That's really uh, interesting because you, you don't hear as much about that. Yeah. But, you know, between the comic shops of the Golden Age, and I mean the, where they were producing them, not where they were selling them, and the advertising agency and, and the influence those agencies had, it's kind of neat that you still have the Neil Adams. I mean, huge influence in comics history, Joe Kubert doing it. Um, you don't hear much about these shops that, that did linger, that did continue for, you know, way past the golden age. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting. There's a lot of comics history that it just is not documented, you know, despite fandom. And, and I'm grateful for every word that they've recorded, but there's still a lot that just doesn't isn't on record. I would always read these interviews with the cartoonists that I like, the independent cartoonists. And, and it's like, yeah, you know, I subsidize my living with with illustration and things. And I just you never knew really what that meant. Like you never I want to see I, I feel like there's some secret work out there by, you know, Charles, Charles Burns and, and Dan Clowes and stuff that they're like totally not happy with, like maybe coloring book illustration that, right. they, that they keep their mouth shut about seriously <laughs> yeah yeah i'm with you i i, I know i laugh because I, <laughs> i'm aware of some of this yeah uh my my highlights on this page eisner saying in 1942 everybody in the comics business was doing it only because it was a way to make a living cut to miller in my generation they were doing it despite the fact it was not a way to make money <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny that's i mean that lingers you know that idea that you can't make money in comics like i hear that when i visit schools man every 19 year old at the school is is eager to tell me that nugget just just people in the business and stuff man like i you know had a phone conversation with fantagraphics not too long ago and uh i i thanked them for because it's like i now like have a place to stay forever that's paid off and what I said to them was, like, in spite of everything that I've done so far, full season of stuff on Adult Swim, Cartoon Network, giant Nike ad campaign, a lot of stuff, the biggest checks I ever made at one, one lump sum, the top three are Fantagraphics checks. And they were like, I don't think anybody could say that. Like, like very few people 
who work with us could, could say that sort of thing but it's possible you know it's possible yeah i always try to stress that it's not this is not an easy business to make money in but it's not impossible to make money in this business yeah Hawks of the Sea, man, that's a that's a strip. I, I have the collection of all. Um, it's a it's a kitchen sink collection that has all of the uh, existing strips that they f had and found at the time, and they even have print blank pages like in the in between spots uh, where where it's missing. And it is a uh, it's a really good education in 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 Eisner's career, man. It's it's pretty, it like, it's raw for what he is. But it's more advanced than uh, than a lot of the like, golden age comic book artwork. But it's less advanced than it's not how Foster in terms of comic strip stuff. It's neat to see the Eisner line work whenever it's whenever that line work was the Lou Fines. Yeah. Well, well the Hal Fosters. Whenever that would have been the king that you're chasing, the uh, the line work. You know, in the style of the Lou Fines and the Bob Powells and the super fine line work. Yeah, that's kind of cool. To the see. proportions are Lou Fine-ish, like like the kind of like curves of these arms and stuff like lufine would really accentuate that that shit and then there was that period of uh, uh simon and kirby where where they were like chasing you know like stuntman mm -hmm. era captain america era even really San sandman and what's a little dude's name sandy what's the little uh, guy's name <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah uh like that that stuff they're all chasing lufine miller goes back to the uh Kefauver hearings and the shadow that cast over the business of comics which is yet to lift I say it's lifted by this point. Yeah. Um, but, you know, depending be where you're at, maybe it takes takes a couple years to, to view it that way. Because n now it's us. And now it's not like the feds. Now it's the audience is like coming at you with the, they got the pitchforks and stuff going. <laughs> no good comics. We don't want good comics. Back to the book burning. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is amazing for a pool quote. Wasn't until the underground comics in the 70s that people really began doing what I considered literature. It's incredible when you think of what those underground comics contained. Yeah. Um, the spirit in which they were made. All of these things. Like, they were so just, you know, almost aggressively counterculture. But at the same time, this is where you start to get the, the trappings of literature being associated with this stuff. Yeah, it's really cool. Because, like, when you think underground comics, you think hippie. And then pre-hippie, you have, like, the beatnik and stuff. So you would have interesting writing things, like like, like uh, the William S. Burroughs, like the cut-up technique or something, where it it's mm -hmm. it's out, it's far-out stuff. Uh, a lot of those comics, they read like that kind of thing. You know, they're not so cohesive. Um, they're pretty surreal, like, spotty and, as reading experiences. But what they brought to the table... Certainly for like the next generation of people, for the Clouses, for for the Hernandez bros and stuff like that. It was just like, let's tear it all the fuck down and build it up in our own image kind of thing. Not image comics, by the way. Um, but it, it, I mean, just pivotal stuff. It's, it's, it's all built on the shoulders of, of those giants, which is also speaking to, you know, the book burning and all that stuff, which is funny when like you go to an SPX and people are, are, t are talking smack and it's like, you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that stuff. Man, I just had this thought. So the, the, you know, those underground comics are all over the map. Yeah. But it's almost like a language dump. Like here's yeah. a whole bunch of new vocabulary sure. that, that you future generations can use in your comics, you Dan Clouses and whatnot. 
And you know, it's associated, of course, with LSD and, and various drugs of that time period. And there are ideas that language develops out of uh, mushroom proliferation after the Ice Age. Stoned ape theory, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, like in a weird way, like the underground comics are another version of that. Because it is when comics just kind of explode in terms of potential. Right. You know, and, it, and it's almost like gibberish in some cases. But gibberish that we're able to continue to mine in the future for, uh, for these comics that, you know, really do take that language to a more sophisticated advanced level than it right. had been before that right yeah and, it, and there's all sorts of subtlety in between because there, there's the bristling uh, sort of against that where we have this direct market this independent space but like what a lot of the most successful stuff was at the time they call like a ground level where it's wendy and richard peeney doing something they owned but it reads like a marvel comic it has that spirit, right. you know what I mean? Uh, so it's like they're adopting a little bit extra, and then it just slowly evolves more and more and more. But I, if you think about it, not slowly, you know? Every year there's like new innovations in comics and, and new stuff being done. Um, talk a little bit about their generation, the different generations. Miller says Eisner's was, uh, there was a sense of craftsmanship. This makes me think of the famous Craft is Dead uh, comics journal letter from James Kachalka. Uh, they weave this in with contemporary, you know, cartooning SPX generation, for example, that they describe often as these guys are, they have something to say. And the craft, the drawing is not as important, but in like Eisner's generation, that, that ability, good drawing, th that was considered the apex of their work. That was what you really aspired to. And that's evolved a lot. Like, I don't know that we still are there. Um, Miller cites like Neil Adams being one of those guys that carried on that tradition, brought in photorealism and things to comics, and Alex Ross being the apex of that direction. Uh, to quote, catastrophic finish. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, that's a pretty good phrase to just pull out in, in conversation, in this kind of conversation. <laughs> Miller wordsmith in there. Yeah, I, I find as we dig into comics history, I find these guys like like Neil Adams. I, I know he's a huge giant superstar, but in some ways, like he's even bigger than that. Like he, just so influential in so many ways, and to so many people that went on to become giant uh, influencers. First guy to kind of swing his dick around, man, and just and just uh, add a little piss and vinegar, and 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 ask the question, why? Why can't we do that? Why can't we have twenty five percent yellow or whatever? Yeah, and, and why don't you return my original art? Yeah. You know, he was on both sides, production and the creator rights side of things, uh, causing trouble. Play play in uh, Marvel against DC and vice versa a couple of times. Do a little cup of coffee at DC, build up your, your rep, go to Marvel, build up your rep, go back to DC, advocate for yourself, have a little fucking dignity. Dignity is a word that comes up a lot here. And uh, people getting punished for having dignity, people being ostracized for having dignity. There are bits that are mentioned about that, like that were in the Dreamer, where they talked about the first unions, that the the first guilds, and uh, let's not work for anything less than five bucks. And then one of the guys like leaves from there and goes right up to his yeah, spot and sells something for four dollars. Yes, yeah, of course. It's fun to have like Eisner weighing in on Todd McFarlane and his appeal, um, and then Miller going from McFarlane to Kirby and how Kirby is like the per is perfect technically, but not exactly uh, great draftsmanship. And it's it's such a uh, it's so much fun like hearing guys of this stature talking about different comic book artists. He mentions they, I mean McFarlane and Spawn is is mentioned as an argument towards 
the artist as being oh, yeah. a, a sales point. Absolutely. You know, it sells itself on its artwork. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, uh, to be honest, I, I would like a little bit more of that in comics and, and like the writer driven medium of what is mainstream comics or like the big three or four, you know, where, where it's yeah. a bunch of writers. Getting... You know, that, that writer driven medium that's, I think it's all comes from peak TV. You know, like like TV compared to film, for example, you know, film is this visual and TV is a writer driven thing because of scheduling and whatnot, yeah. at least traditionally. And I think that that's probably why you see comics that are so writer side of that uh, equation. Yeah. Sounds good to me. I can't argue that. Um, Eisner talking about he thought that this would all change overnight when he published a contract with God and uh, and it took uh, decades. But I do think we're kind of there, you know, like you look at the graphic novel market um you know books book sellers have overtaken direct market for comic sales in this country in the last couple of years and uh, i feel like that's a man that's the capitalist perspective of contract with god being the future and eisner clings to that literature you know for him that's the high point it comes up again and again it's funny you you know we're 200 pages into this interview and you see certain things that these guys keep going back to right. and i think literature is is one of those things eisner latched onto early as being a value and uh, pretty much carried that throughout his career you know man it's so like here's where comics like supersede literature to to a certain extent uh, not considering the the long tail aspect of prose literature like i've been invited to many uh to many like literary festivals with proper prose authors and and like prose offers uh, authors of the highest esteem and i have amazing stories that i'll just have to tell like like after like some of these old timers pass because it would be pro probably pretty embarrassing but but super funny um our basic sales for for uh comics Pros, pros novelists wish they they sold as many for, like they wish they sold as much as like the base average of what we sell in in, in comics and that's a small number three thousand maybe four thousand they wish they sold that now if you hit that long you know if you're at the top of the long tail and you're selling 20 million copies of something that's different like well we're not talking about that stuff um having the imagery to go along with your work as a sales tool cuts through so much chaff like we just don't respect it you have to go to these literary festivals man to like really understand it and respect it because the climbers that are prose authors and what they have to do to get a little bit of attention it's fucking disgusting but i say that from the perspective of a cartoonist where it's like look at my comic take a look two seconds man you know you're in or you're out. They're using the same words that next Joey Jerkoff is using. So they have to like agonize over the copy on the back cover and they have to have their like spiel pitch and they all come off as like vacuum cleaner, door-to-door -door salesman type motherfuckers, man. It's pretty gross what the prose author like has to do to kind of get a little bit of attention and it makes you respect the comics medium even more for like what you don't have to do in a lot of ways it's so funny as you say that in my head i'm going man i bet i could learn a lot about like selling my books from that 
Because yeah. think of how bad many cartoonists are. You know, like like I I tried to learn how to talk about my comics because I would witness this at shows when people would come up and be like, "What's your book about?" To the people around you, and you hear some of the answers that come out. Right. It's like I got to learn how to answer that question. Sure. And I bet you, if you take away the pictures, you really got to learn how to answer that question. Yeah, but, but here's the trick, man. Don't don't look like a shield or something. You got to figure that part out. Like, don't look like you're trying to sell like you know upsell me on. Uh, better brushes to fix on the tip of my vacuum sweeper. I have uh, Miller highlighting. In the world of comic books, troublemaker means someone who has some sense of dignity, which is what you were saying there a minute ago, Ed. Yeah. And, uh, and again, Neil Adams is the name that's uh, you know most closely associated with that quote. Is uh, he's talking about some of these things, you know, whether it's wanting artwork back, unionizing, just all of it. To this day, you know, there's like a lot of chatter, a lot of feedback. Uh, you know, he's continuing to like do things, man. Like I think I think he sold a bunch of like a comic as an NFT or something, which is a revolutionary thing that people are bristling at, shitting on right now. Uh, watch what happens when your airplane ticket is an NFT or your concert ticket's an NFT. Like you're gonna you're gonna be participating in this. Uh, at some point, and there's no atoms like at the forefront of that part too. This is a fun piece. If you had a choice between getting a hundred pages by John Buscema that a magnificent or five hundred that he crapped out, Miller would rather have the hundred. But this industry, this business, is set up in the opposite. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, it, it, it's right. You know, I, I think that's. Uh, I think that's a pretty accurate statement. Yeah, it is. It is. And, and uh, it's the, the cool thing about a career. Like there's that part where, where Miller's talking about doing like job or comics for like four or five years. Built a big rep and then, you know, special projects for the rest of his life. You know, like no, no, no more monthly uh, hamster wheel. Says he even stayed on. He thinks one year too long that he wasn't as engaged the last year of Daredevil. Inter interesting. Um, I have some stuff about Eisner talking in the 50s, how he believed almost romantically that there was a big opening in the instructional field for this medium to go into. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the generals was against that. And they actually did testing with it between his comics and technical manuals. And he, quote, beat the hell out of them. I'm sure. So, uh, you know, you can see some of that stuff's been reprinted and collected in, like, PS. Um, but it's interesting. That's what he's doing in the 50s where comics are being, you know, drugged through the mud and b being burnt by the, by the local church group and stuff like that. Eisner's out there working for the U.S. government, essentially in the defense sector of the economy. So that's pretty good. Uh, you know, there have been, been solid paychecks in that area for, for as long as we've been alive and then some. Eisner's a pretty honest artist, man. Yeah. Like, that's a pretty honest self-portrait, I feel like. Very unflattering. <laughs> And it's like all of our pups, all of our grandpaps. <laughs> they all had it. I like this part. Miller says that we got to figure out the infrastructure. We have to look at the infrastructure of selling comics with new eyes in order to figure out how to survive. We have a larger audience than we're accessing. And uh, says that he's he's gives away comics to people because they ask him, where can I find it? Uh-huh. I love this a lot because we are still in this. I and, love and, it. And, and it's different now, I think. Some of the problems are different now. Some of them are still the same. Like when I was trying to tell, you know, a friend where to get the Hulk, 
and, and pre-ordering, it was just like, forget it. I'll just get you one. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so we're still there in some ways with the where can I find it. But the flip side is there's so much stuff available now that it's really hard to find. Like there's a comic out there, I believe, for everyone. Mm-hmm. But good luck having somebody find that comic. Like all I do is look at comics and I still miss things. So the person who's just a lay person, there's so much out there and available. Where do you begin? How do you even know it exists? You know, like, I think that's a real problem in terms of the product's never been better, in my opinion. But getting that product to a receptive reader, we have, it might be worse than it's ever been. It's kind of like, you got to get out of your microcosm. Fuck your friends. Fuck, fuck what your friends are doing. Like, one of the, one of the greatest things that ever sort of happened to me in my career was hooking up with boingboing.net a place that had no real comic representation. It's not a comic book website. It's not any of that bullshit that's involved in our own little microcosm speaking to, you know, to, to the, the, the choir or whatever. I went to a place where there was none of that. I was the comic and the audience was like so huge. Uh, and you get 5% of that or something, 6% of that. And it turns out to be tens of thousands of people. You know what I mean? Like, if we had enough people doing that sort of thing, you know, uh, Simon on Tumblr doing his thing back in the day, building his audience gigantic like that. The stuff you could do on Instagram could build your audience gigantic. But, like, don't just try to impress your friends by having your own Rizograph 50 copies. Like, how's that going to do anything? One of my most sold books is, is a running comic. Because again, it's like it, it talks to a certain group. It's yeah. not necessarily comics fans. It's it's runners. Yeah. And, and, and you know, like finding a way you, you got to do the work to connect it. Yes. Like you've got to find a way to put that in front of somebody who likes running. Yep. And, and you know, that's the part of sales that I feel like we could all just improve publishers, creators, everybody like there's so much room for that. And all it is, is connecting to an audience. Yep. Building this platform right here. Like, we're, we'll be able to self-publish comics forever if we need to. We talked about a lot of the stuff that's in these final two chapters, like, throughout throughout the conversation. Um, Eisner owns up to rejecting Superman. Yes. That it, that it came across his desk, and he was one of the many people who passed on that. <laughs> this is the talk, I think, in the beginning we were talking about anti-Semitism and how that affected early comic book time period. And that's a lot of what this chapter is. Yes. And it also talks about so many of these stories because like sometimes you'll see comparisons between like, um, you know, like Superman story with old religious stories and why that is. And, you know, it has to do with, those are the stories that have been around for thousands of years. These religious stories, they inform everybody that's telling stories. So I, of I, course that that seeps into comic books. I remember when we were speaking with um, Caitlin McGurk at uh, Billy Ireland, and she said like the first comic she ever read was the Stations of the Cross stained glass windows in church. Three a triptych, you know, three three images that told a story. It's so true. It's so true. There's a great comic about that, and, I, and the name's slipping, but maybe I'll add it in post. Um, but I can remember going to some of those churches in Paris when we were there, and like that's what I would look at were the stained glass windows that were like graphic novels man you could just go around like spin 360 and get like an entire story it's like pages of that stuff cowardice and shame this covers a lot of uh you know again stuff that we talked about early in this episode but miller keeps coming back to this idea of like 
you were comics had such a stigma against them yeah you know like if you were a comic book artist you were a lousy artist also these comics are juvenile delinquency there you know it was just one thing after another like people would lie and they would they would never say that they were a comic book artist everybody was trying to conform at that time like if there was just like one dude who was like you know what i am gonna corrupt your freaking kids and love it like those that dude would be a legend but no you have bernie krigstein who uh goes the opposite direction quits comics yeah miller talks on uh cowardice right and and asks you know like he's trying to get eisner to name cowards in the comics business and i wish tom was here yeah eisner comes back with kirby say it man because of his unwillingness to break loose from marvel or dc comics it's a really interesting point of view because again eisner never worked in that system like he found a way to make comics very influential comics you know you could have an argument about who's more influential in, in where comics are today kirby or eisner two of the biggest influences one was all in the system and one was all outside of that system and otherwise they're contemporaries right it's it's wild i wish there was a was an eisner kirby conversational book like this or a miller kirby to get that other perspective um but it's 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 not it's not what miller wanted whenever whenever eisner proposes this miller's like no i was thinking there were people who just definitely wouldn't show up whenever when it was time to stand up as a group or something talks about neil adam trying to organize and talks about hanging the uh the the note on the door at the office once um royalties were announced at dc and miller said pay me or not he he also said that he poo-pooed the guild talks he wasn't there he didn't participate yeah he says he was new and he just didn't feel like he had any influence and there's and and, uh, and so that's always the case uh there's always going to be some noob who's willing to do cheap work he does go on to do a uh a, a newsletter in the late 80s that was um all professionals just writing in you know whatever reporting on whatever experiences complaining about this or that talking shop see, and, and talking see, business see our video on wap words yes. and pictures <laughs> right right words and pictures <laughs> <laughs> i love that newsletter by the way that's one of those documents that just crossed my path you know since we started this channel uh-huh. and really was like that is some comics history right there yep. i'm surprised that's not more widely discussed or known it's findable so like Go read that if you want some behind the scenes of how the comics industry was. It's Dave Meltzer dirt sheet of comics. It really is, written by guys who were there. Yeah, not Dave Meltzer. <laughs> Sitting right. there watching everything happen. There's a part uh, talking about, like, you know, creator owned comics versus the page rate comics. Uh, Eisner properties, we're, we're building equity. And that, and that's that's exactly what it is. Like, that's how I've b- begun to, to, to see, to see my works and stuff. And, and like each, each comic is a, it's a, it's like a stock or a bond. And, and like when it's profitable, like, like it's, it's varying levels of, of profit. Some, some stocks go up higher than, than, than others. Uh, but once you're in the black, you're in the black, man. Yeah. And you know, it's so, it's so brilliant that it's hard to believe it didn't start before this. The idea of, you know, contract with God, you have annuities. You know, those royalties, as you say, once it's in the black, like like you're getting paid and it's yours. If you decide to move it to somewhere else to do a different format with it, to do the artist edition, whatever it is, you get to do all that. You make a deal with Dargo in France, it like it literally doubles your, your income. Think of what Eisner got paid for the initial publishing of The Spirit and then what he's gotten paid for The Spirit ever since then. And yeah. what, what, what his family is still getting paid for, for The Spirit. You know, like it, it's it's 
man, whenever you do that and then you look at Jack Kirby and you just think like billions, oh, yeah. billions that his that his stuff makes and he doesn't really get any. I know he got a settlement, but that settlement was, I mean, $60 million or something. It, it wasn't billions. Right. It's And it's, it just keeps churning. It just keeps churning. And in all of the deposition talks that we do and stuff, like there's this thing about like, complaining about like little incidental characters and stuff like Groot was an incidental character in like one comic in the 50s that wasn't used anywhere else and and then you know it's in one of the biggest Marvel movies so so you can't you can't poo-poo this stuff when these guys are like yeah I created this character and this character and this character like they uh they, they talk about intellectual property and Eisner explains how it's just property that's what they called it back in the days and that's how those uh publishers would would sort of view it you know like i own the superman property and i and, and i can hire and fire anybody else besides me and they, they talk a little bit about the downside of doing something like a comic strip of being like you sort of have to be the same do the same thing over and over and over he talks that talks that smack on uh on charles schultz uh, it was kind of the same the last strip was the kind of the same as the first yeah year after year same thing look at peanuts <laughs> That's some, that's some, uh, get some, some, some pushback on that one probably will. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, there's a little hate, hater aid in, in that piece, man. <laughs> there's a little bit of that in there, I think. Man, they go back and forth too. Like Eisner digs in. Miller tries to defend that strip and, and the, quite an evolution for a strip. Um, the drawing changed, you know, and, and Eisner just doesn't budge. Not he, that much. He, he keeps, yeah. Yeah, he's shitting on Charles Schultz. Cause you know, like, like, uh, Peanuts, Peanuts, it was like, the reason why all kinds of strips had to spare down their their artwork and stuff was peanuts related. Yeah, that's a chicken and an egg though. Was it that peanuts was built well in terms of like it would work as a postage stamp size, or did that initiate the postage stamp sizing of comic strips? Right. A little bit of milk kniff comes up. Yeah, because he can't draw his strips the way he wants to because of peanuts. Yeah, he was and very sad. And the stamp <laughs> size that we were just talking about. This is amazing. For for Miller, looking at the future of comic strips is kind of like asking about the future of the Nickelodeon or something. <laughs> yeah. Man, how things have changed. You know, like like uh, these guys, you know, the Kirbys and the Eisners, like, man, whenever they start making comic books, the, the comic strip is the thing. Like, that's what you would aspire to. That would be the greatest form of comics. And now it's like... It's out. It's over. And and you know the argument is like, what's the what's the great comic strips, right? right? We all say Calvin and Hobbes, but I mean like, that's that's almost thirty years ago. Yeah, I mean really where it is, man. It's just you got to rethink it, and it's not a piece. And first off, nobody's buying newspapers. That's right too. Uh, so you got to rethink it. And having that scroll on Instagram where you could have ten pictures, person who used it the best. Once again, it's Simon, dude. Like when we were all fucking running around like like uh, chickens with our heads cut off through COVID. He sat down and worked 20 hours a day some days to draw 10 images of a sequence every single day for a year. That's crisis zone. You know what I'm saying? Think of how many, I would love to know like the number of fans he built in that year. He Tens of thousands of new uh, subscribers uh, or like new followers on Instagram. I'm sure the book did really, really well uh, for him. Do, having that routine and doing that, people, he had a captive audience that was looking for some kind of relief and to have that daily strip of 10 images labor intensive work you know uh 
fantastic. Yeah, definitely. And, 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 and really set a pace and prove proves that like the comic strip is completely he it's all this it's all squares you know he it, yo will he's he's using the same format uh it works yeah no doubt about it and you know closes out with newspapers no longer believe that comic strips deliver circulation like they did in the uh 20s and 30s yeah that's uh i mean newspapers just yeah of course yeah not too much juicy stuff in the bitterness and backstabbing really yeah, this is where they break down the various properties, uh, you know, the titles we think of now, intellectual property, you hear a lot, uh, given some, some backgrounds on that. And and sort of the idea, like, it sort of talked about how tough it would have been to have novelty press, uh, self-published works back in the day, because you, one, you would have to get a contract with a distributor. Uh, distributor isn't going to touch anything, man, if you don't, uh, if they don't take uh, 3,000. So you have to have the capital up front to do 3,000 copies. No, 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 no. 300,000. 300,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, th yeah 300,000 copies. This reminded me a lot of uh, the wrestling territory stuff because it was the, the pulp markets dying, but they had something that was valuable, and that's the distribution contracts. Yeah. And it reminds me of, like, you hear about Vince McMahon buying out these territories, all he wanted was the television contract in some of those places, and it feels like that's kind of the similar model, yeah. you know, to, to emphasize how important distribution is. And it's kind of cool to hear them talk that distribution stuff and how certain distribution changes did change what comics could be made, particularly the direct market, of course. Gotta be strong enough to withstand the return of maybe 100,000 or 250,000 copies. I One of the things I did in Hulk was went through all of the US uh, postage statements that they would do every year, and they would include like the total number of books printed, the total number of paid circulation. Um, the highest numbers would be 500,000 for total prints, and they were eating, there, there were 200,000 copies not paid mm. in, in a print run that size, which is wild. They break that math down in here where it's like, you know, it costs three cents to print it and you sell it to the distributor for five cents and stuff like yeah, micro payments. You really did have to do those hundreds of thousands numbers to get to that point. Eisner says in the beginning, you had an idea and you had to give it away literally to a publisher in exchange for the promise of work. Yeah. Uh, in, in a career, like almost everybody, musician, everybody, like your first, unless unless you're a phenom, unless it's so clear that people are going to make money off of you, which is possible with the internet, you know, SoundCloud rappers and shit like that, it's possible. Get a lawyer to negotiate that first contract. Yeah, yeah, but but more often than not, you're you're kind of giving it away in a matter of speaking. You will be able to get a deal and or renegotiate if you've proven that your thing is valuable and they want that next one. Romance me. Yeah, yeah. I always say like, uh, and you see it with like. Um, I use, you know, Adam Sandler's and, and Will Ferrell's, like, you do the first one for free and then you're paid to do that act again mm -hmm. over and over. Oh, comedians, musicians, you see it everywhere. It's like, that's that's kind of the nature. You know, usually people pay you for what you've done as opposed to necessarily the new thing that you're trying to do. Miller gives Neil Adams a lot of credit for um, changing the way we think. And I like that. I like those kind of thoughts. Yeah. Phil Soling did profoundly change things. I love seeing that come up because, again, like Phil Soling, for anybody unfamiliar, 
was kind of the father of the direct market system, the non-returnable system that changed everything. That meant you didn't have to do 500,000 and lose 200,000. It meant you took pre-orders. And if you knew 17,000 people were gonna pay for this thing in advance, you print 20,000 and uh, you don't lose your shirt and you don't have to take out a gargantuan loan in order to cover hundreds of thousands of, of print run. And it really did change everything. You no longer had to aim for like the lowest common denominator. Now you could really do like, this is very specialized work. We'll do a uh, an interview between Will Eisner and Phil Suling from the Shop Talk book uh, in the future. Yeah, I think that's a big one. Um, the last thing that I that I had that I that I wanted to just mention, and, and and we scooted by it once, but I wanted to come back to it. Talking about when Miller does Batman and says that's a very courageous thing, Eisner says on the part of DC Comics, considering you know what you did. And Miller says they were desperate. The book was in the toilet. And Eisner says the motivation is always desperation. And I kind of think, like, we've talked about, like, Joe Quesada's run at Marvel and how when he shows up, man, cool stuff everywhere. New creators, new books, new ideas, all this stuff. And then, I don't know, like, it seems to be not that way now. And I wonder if that's a reflection of desperation. Because he gets in there, like, late 90s, early 2000s. Comics are... It is dire times for the comics industry. And you look around now and it's like the last couple of years we see direct market sales are up, uh, which is amazing considering, you know, brick and mortar retail everywhere else is, t is struggling, but the comics market is in good shape. And so I wonder, like, you see a little bit less invention when things are, are going well. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the sort of the, 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 the commonly told story in comics and, and Miller's a part of it is, you know, he took he took on a dying book in, in Daredevil and made it a success. And then the editorial at that point starts to shoehorn in a little bit and want things to go a certain way. Or uh, the one from our time period is certainly uh, McFarlane on Spider-Man. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's in the toilet. He starts doing things, gets the numbers up a lot. There are four other Spider-Man titles. None of them are doing the numbers put together what McFarlane's comic is doing. And then the editors start saying, oh, you can't do this. What's with the eyes? What's with the spaghetti webs and all that stuff? And, he's, and it's like, well, this is stuff that people are responding to. This is the stuff that's different from all those other books. It's kind of the same thing, man, where it's taking a chance uh, with something that's not really being looked at. I think it. of it like, um, you know, I, we hear this is the end of the world and the sky is falling and all this stuff. If things are really bad, and I'm not saying they are or aren't, but if your perspective is that they're really bad, look around for opportunities. Yeah. Because that's when those opportunities are available. It's when people are desperate and, and ready to take a chance um, when they're looking for something. So now may be a great time for figuring out how to connect your comics to an audience. Buy the dip. You buy the dip, man. Sell high. All right. Well, that gets us to uh, the next block of chapters. The so, schema. Uh, yeah. We're starting off strong, man. Spicy. Yes. But, uh, man, there, there, there was a lot of material in there. Yes. You know, one of the revelations for me with these interviews is just how much comics history you get to uh, kind of hear these guys discussing and bringing up. And I don't know why, but, man, I, I, I've been enjoying the comics history lately. So Absolutely. Pretty, pretty fun to get into some of that. That's for sure, man. Just because we're part of comics history, man. Good to go? I am. Okay, favors like, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell. We'll notify you when new vids are available. What's out there, Jimmy? 
Hulk Grand Design Monster number one in comic shops everywhere, unless they've sold out. So run to your local comic shop and pick that up and tell them you want a copy of Hulk Grand Design Madness number one coming late in April. This is a retelling of the 60-year history of the Hulk through my eyes and hand. And I appreciate your support on that. And you can join me on patreon.com slash jimrug. Red Room Trigger Warnings out on stands now. Issue one is on stands. And depending on when you're watching this, issue two is available Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit is the name of the game in Red Room Comics. Uh, you can read these comics on my Patreon right now uh, for the the price of $3 for the entire archive, 200 plus pages worth of material. Um, every issue is self-contained, so if you see one of these issues, just scoop it up, give it a read. Um, hit up my link tree in the description below this video so you can get to all those destinations. What else do we have out there, Jim? Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe newsletter at the links below this video. You can also find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise at the links below this video. That's another another great way to support the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel. Jimmy, given the marching orders, we're going to be on our way. Make more comics.